Today's podcast is brought to you by Eggshell Light Company. For over 45 years, Eggshell Light Company has been the go-to specialty shop handling the lighting needs for all that grace the shores of beautiful Hawaii. Combining the artistic methods of the theater with the speed and efficiency of the musical touring industry, they have pioneered event lighting throughout the Hawaiian Islands. They specialize in supply of top shelf equipment and designers for broadcast concerts, corporate, and special events. From the smallest weddings to televised concerts and the largest corporate clients, they know this is your most important event. It is their goal to make sure you feel that way. Aloha from Eggshell Light Company. Welcome everyone to another episode of LD at Large Podcast. My name is Chris Lose. I am a designer relations developer at Ayrton Lighting as well as columnist for PLSN Magazine. I hope you're all enjoying listening and reading. I am very excited today because it is one of those moments where I get to be like cool dad. Brought my kids in to watch a movie called Music by Sia. If you haven't seen it, you should really go out and check it out. Recently premiered. It's on a couple different platforms. If you are into very interesting, thought-provoking movies, this is definitely one of them. There's uh, some parts that are very family-oriented, and there's some parts that aren't. I would give it a, a PG-13. There was a couple times where I had to explain a couple things to my kids of what was going on, and they got it. But anyway, to get past that, there are some really cool concert moments that and some very interesting dance scenes. And at the very end, I, I was watching for the LD and I got to see Matt Ardine's name on there. And I was like, Hey, I know that guy. And my kids were like, Oh, you know, that guy, you know, a guy who does some, some in Hollywood. I'm like, yeah, I know some people. And so I got to like, yeah, you know what? I'm going to reach out to him. And my kids were like, that's pretty cool, dad. So today I'm very excited. Today's the day where I get to reach out to Matt and have a discussion with him and, uh, and share it with my audience. Thank you so much for joining me, Matt today. Matt Thanks is for the, having me. Yeah. Matt is the lighting designer and gaffer for many commercials and, uh, and video shoots and, and uh, many different projects. He is out of LA. Thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. Thanks. Thanks. I'm looking forward to it. I, I enjoyed the movie so much. It, uh, I don't, it's I so believe you hear. had mostly to do, you had a lot to do with the, the concert portions or the music video parts. Yeah, originally they wanted me to do be the gaffer for the whole movie, but when I read the script, I saw that the concert perform the the musical performances required so much attention that there was no way that the gaffer doing the normal scenes could do the the musical performances as well. So I came on just to do. Um, I think I ended up doing seven of the ten musical performances that we shot. Okay, and it was just working with the team from the movie. Uh, the choreographer, director, who was Sia, the cinematographer and the production designer to figure out, you know, what is the scene? What is the set for the scene? And, you know, how can we incorporate lighting that helps tell the story and go to the song? Because originally when they first started shooting, they were like, oh no, we don't need a lighting designer. And then they filmed the first performance and it was, it looked beautiful. Um, but none of the lighting went to the music. It was just like a softbox overhead. And then uh, after that, they they brought me on and they're like, okay, no, Sia really wants the lighting to go to the music. That was like the the term that I was given. <laughs> I so. love hearing stories about that. No, we don't need a lighting designer or anything. We just turn on some lights and we'll just let the people do their thing. Like, mm, no, that takes a lot more effort than you think. And it sort of worked out to their advantage because one of the musical numbers I missed was one of my favorite. Um, I don't want to ruin <laughs> anything for the movie, but character comes out on a bicycle and there's this whole dance um, with uh, Felix. And all it is is a soft light overhead and nothing's going to the music at all. And I think it's perfect for that scene. And I'm like very glad that they brought me in late because I'm afraid that if I came on, I would have tried to make that scene have more than what it ended up being and destroyed the the niceness of it just being about the choreography with nice even lighting everywhere oh that's a good way to kind of put your ego aside and realize that less is more sometimes oh, exactly. you don't we're, we're as as human beings we're terrible at adding more things than we need to we just we, we tend to do things because we can not because we have to of my top 10 favorite lighting cues I've ever created on any project, probably five of them 
are the ones where we go to just one light on, you know? I agree. I agree. There's, there's so much power in knowing that all that horsepower is there mm -hmm. and not using it, showing that much restraint. I'm a huge fan of that. Especially on camera. Nothing beats the one centered backlight and nothing else on. Uh, that's a very music video trick that I've learned over the years and have tried to bring into concerts and musicals and everything I've done. It's weird. It's, it has more impact the more lights you have in the rig. If you have a thousand lights and you only use one of them, mm -hmm. that's huge. If you only have four lights and you're only using one of them, like what are the other three broken? What's, what's going on here? Yeah. I've learned that from like one of my main cinematographers I work with is uh, Larkin Seipel. And we always install pretty large, decent rigs so that we can do a little bit of everything. And then I create a base look and then he'll come in and be like, all right, let's shut everything off and let's see what each light does. And then he ends up with like two lights on out of the hundred that we put up. And uh, from him doing that over and over, we've come up with some amazing looks and commercials when you realize that, that a lot of times less is more and you need all the lights there because you need all the possibilities, but you don't need mm -hmm. them all on at the same time. Absolutely. And I think in doing broadcast concerts, that has helped a lot because a, a big thing for me is trying to figure out what works for broadcast concerts and how to explain to uh, touring lighting designers and touring lighting directors when they come into the iHeartRadio theater, like how do we translate your tour to what we're filming here in the studio? And a lot of times it is trying to convey to them this less is more idea like the big fan outs do not work the big chases from center out do not work you know all that we're, we're filming the close-up that's what we need to focus on and we can't turn on all the lights because then it fills up all the haze in the room and we get no contrast mm -hmm. so let's just stick with one row of backlight and then one row of effects lights and we can get pretty good performances that way and, and keeping it simple so that's a tough one. You really have to convince the touring LDs when they come through to look at just the monitor because they'll stand yeah. they'll they'll step up and they'll stand up and look over the monitor and like, no, it doesn't look right, but look at the monitor. Mm -hmm. You're only seeing the three lights that are behind the band, or you know, we're only seeing the two beams that are crossing. The the giant fan doesn't make any sense like that. The biggest advice I could say when you're going from non-camera events to camera events is try to an anticipate the edit because if you somewhat know what this is going to look like when it's a finished product then you can concentrate on those things and one of the things exactly what you mentioned 90 percent of the show is going to live in the close-up so mm -hmm. focus on the close-up light the close-up and then work your way out from there and of course part of that is you know key lights mm -hmm. uh, which i think is automatically the one thing a, a concert lighting designer it's like, oh, we're broadcast, key lights. That's all we need. That's the only thing we need to change for our show is add key lights. But there's a lot of other things to bring in consideration. Is, and if you can think about how it's going to be edited, then you can really anticipate that. And like I said before, you, the wide shots are not used very, very much. So fan outs do not work. The tilt up above the audience's head does not work. Ah, those are our best tools, though. They are, they are. And they look awesome when you go to a concert and they look yep. awesome when on the jib shot that's wide, but that jib shot is a lot of times to get in and out of the song. And then the rest of the time it's on the center close up of the singer. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know. so one of the things about the movie is they go in mm -hmm. and out of what I believe is reality and imagination or her mm -hmm. reality. So basically when you were creating some of these, these looks, like they're completely surreal and you have to kind of con you have to complement what is reality. And you still have to be able to kind of come out and say, this is not real. This is her imagination. That must be very interesting. Cause it, it was, it's a, it's a messy, uh, it's, it's very messy inside her imagination. Yeah, the one of the lead characters, um, she's autistic. Um, Maddie Ziegler, who's known as um, Sia's main dancer that we've been seeing grow up as a little kid. I think she's seventeen or eighteen now. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, she's the one with the the autistic mind that 
we're trying to get inside of for most of these dance performances. Some of these dance performances are from other characters, mine. And in the script, there was actually this thing that they wrote saying that when we transition from real life to imaginary life, in real life, we turn on a spotlight for them. And then we cut to the imaginary dance performance and we start in a spotlight and then the rest of the set fades up. So that was a trick that was actually written into the script to use lighting to transition from real to imaginary. And these types of movies have always been my favorite. Uh, I love movie musicals and especially the ones that go from this reality to fantasy. And I've done a couple others. I did um, a movie for the last season of uh, Transparent, which had a, I did two or three performances for that. That was same sort of deal. So with most of them, you kind of get an, an idea that that's happening. But then when they do the one with Leslie Odom Jr., it is spot on. Like you, they, they zoom in, the spotlight mm -hmm. turns on, and then they zoom back out and he's in a whole new, you can, he's clearly in an imagination world. You're talking about the mainly blue one in that. Yeah. Oh, that was a, so there's this really cool product that we use for that for the first time. It's called the photo bubble. Okay. It's basically this guy figured out how to take clear visqueen, you know, thin, like I think it's five millimeter plastic and blow air into it and make a stage space out of it. So that whole thing is just plastic visqueen with air blowing in to make a tent. Really? Yeah. So it's like you took a sphere, cut it in half and then just blew air into it to keep. And that's the whole stage. So trying it's to figure one out one giant piece of fabric. No, it's visqueen. It's just plastic. Jeez. Yeah. It's this really cool product. I seen other commercials film. Um, they'll use it for car commercials a lot. Okay. Because you can light it in different colors and it's uh it completely shows up like in limbo, like you had a 360 degree psych wall. Uh, so the tricky thing was, was how the heck do we get trusts inside of there? <laughs> so <laughs> it was many hours in Vectorworks and calling different rental houses to try to find the correct OD trust that you can fit in. And you can imagine in Vectorworks, you're trying to figure out the, um, the diameter of the photo bubble as it goes up and then how high up can you fit the truss in a dome? You know, because the bigger the truss you have, the lower it's going to be, the more it's going to be in shot. So trying to model all that in Vectorworks. So the main thing before I even started designing was find this freaking truss that can fit in there. And then I talked to the, um, the grip rigging crew and they said, oh yeah, we can just do four motors. So they had to, all they had to do was cut in the bubble four holes for the chain to fit through. And then from there, I was actually able to figure out how I can actually light this thing. So there's a row of movers inside there in circular. And then they wanted, um, I think it mainly got cut from the movie, but it's in the trailer. They had a really cool idea of doing a plexi um, deck and then put sand on top of it. And then as they dance, they kick the sand. And then I just put, I think, 100 Source 4s, uh, Source 4 lusters under the plexi deck and shot them straight up. So as they kick the sand, the source four light comes flying out from underneath the sand shooting up. I, I don't think it's in the movie, but it's, it's in, the, in the movie. No, I saw that for sure. That was, I was blown away. That was really pretty. And it was great. It's a lighting cue that we didn't actually have to cue. The lights are on the whole time and the dancers cue it themselves by kicking the sand and letting the light escape through. And yeah, then of course we have that to more light. often. The, the more yeah. often with the light, the, they have control of their own lights. Just you, whenever you want to be in, you just kick the sand. Yeah. And honestly, I didn't come up with that idea. That was completely the production designer coming up with that idea. And I just had to figure out what is the best light to fit under there in the spacing. Right on. Yeah. But, if anybody uh, gets, a, when, when you get a chance to go watch a movie, it's, it's a, this brilliant scene where she's in the dark and all of a sudden she just, the light just shoots up her nose from the, from the floor and it's just because she's standing on sand. It, it's, yeah. it's really pretty. And the choreographer, I think as soon as the art department told the choreographer, the choreographer, just uh, Ryan Heffington, he went to town with that idea, trying to work that into the choreography in, in several spots. Uh, the climax has to be the end for me. That last dance scene, I think it's even the credits. 
is yeah. so much fun. It is. Uh, yeah, the lighting is 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 not. I don't know if the rig is asymmetrical or if everything's just kind of oddly shaped or placed or something, but it's it's perfectly messy. The the, the cueing matches the music, but it's not what you and I would think is is perfect lighting. It but it mm -hmm. matches. Yeah, that one's that one. I was like, I, I'm just gonna design a generic light rig to do this. So it was a four wall set with Steadicam looking 360. So the only place of course is to put lights over the set walls. So just four lines of truss making a corner and then just fill it with as many movers as we can afford. And then I did a, a, a soft box over the set. So a lot of times in film lighting, we still need this soft ambience to fill in. And so that was a sky panel soft box over the set. And I think I gotta put it on, I gotta put that movie on my website now that's out. I usually like to put lighting plots on my website just so when people have questions, they can look at them. Um, cool. So the hardest part for that is it was a steady cam, a very choreographed move steady cam move with the um with the dance team. And what the producers allowed on this movie that I thought was genius was they had the steady cam operator only do the music performances. And they had him go to the dancers' rehearsals. So it wasn't just like the choreographer being like, all right, here's a dance, steady cam, follow it as best as you can. The choreographer actually choreographed the steady cam along with the dancers. And in the rehearsal space for two weeks, the steady cam operator was there dancing with the dancers. And I think that added so much to the movie because you can That's see cool. these steady cam moves that there, there's no way that if we just had half a day for Steadicam to figure out the choreography and then work along with the dancers it wouldn't have worked especially in a scene like that where I think there's 20 characters in a tiny space people would have just been nailed with the Steadicam so they give yeah. me those rehearsal videos and then from there it's trying to figure out like all right exactly at this moment Steadicam's looking this direction so I need a backlight coming from there and then I, I need a side key but then Steadicam turns around that backlight is now going to be a very ugly front light that the steady cam is going to shadow so now we have to backlight from here fade out that previous backlight and find a new way to key so even it does though it doesn't seem like there's much cueing in that song because honestly there's not too much that actually goes to the music for that performance there's probably 150 cues just changing what is the backlight what is the key light and then changing the ambience overhead for each one of those positions because mm -hmm. nothing's worse than the steady cam coming around and them shadowing the performer and you being the reason that you ruined a take and now we need to figure out a new place to key them from for that position. Yeah, that actually uh, ties us back to where we started with this conversation is a lot of people think that they, they don't need lighting, but they have no idea that it took 150 cues to make something look like there were no cues. Yeah. And, and luckily they had been rehearsing for so long. So I could just lock the time code and didn't have to worry about them hitting the marks because Steadicam and Talent were so well rehearsed by that point that every one of these songs was completely time code. I don't, I think maybe only one of them, I automated some stuff because they were trying some extra stuff out with the camera, but everything else I was able to stay on time code because I hate for film shoots to not be on time code because there's usually so many different things going on. I don't want to be the reason that we messed up a take and have to do it again. So any music video that I can be on time code, all the better. Let's take one more thing out of the, the manual manual mode. And, and, and that way it's either the camera, the choreography or focus pulling. That is the reason we need to take not letting cues. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Matt's just sitting up there with this giant arrow. Like, don't look at me. Look over there. That was, he's, he's holding you up. Not me. Not it, exactly that's a good that, feeling cool so uh this was clearly filmed and shot during this isolation period i mean it uh no actually music uh that movie principal photography was in 2017 was principal photography oh wow yeah and then um they did an edit of the movie i watched an edit of the movie and the plot did not make very much sense the way I think the first edit, they took the script and exactly edited it at, as the script was. And just plot wise, it was, there was tons of holes in it. So then, but this is very similar. Any movie I've done, 
is usually like this. The first round of editing is very true to the script and it doesn't really work. So then they do updates to the script and we do additional photography. Uh, and I've done additional photography for like a dozen movies. Sometimes I just, I come in to just do the additional photography. So then in 2018, um, we did about a week of additional photography and music, that last dance number that you just talked about, which you can actually go on YouTube and just watch that one. They released that one as a single. Uh, it's called Sia Together. Uh, I think it came out maybe like six months ago. Mm -hmm. um, we filmed that as an additional scene when they realized like, oh, we need a finale that's some sort of happy finale. Uh, <laughs> and so that was 2018. And then I think they went through a couple editors and finally this new edit, I, uh, the editor did amazing stuff with. They actually took, in the end, I think they screwed up some of my lighting and some of my lighting like doesn't make sense, but honestly, nothing we ever do no matter what it is, is all about the lighting. <laughs> you know, I think we've all come to realize that, that we're, we're down on the totem pole when it comes to actually making a project successful. Um, so what the editor did is they took performances that aren't even in the movie and they cut them into other parts of the scenes. So I'm not sure when you're watching it, you're like, why are the lights strobing right now? That makes no sense. Like, oh, that was, that was the bridge from this one song that's not in the movie. And they took that part and put it in this section of the movie. It makes sense story-wise, but it does not make sense lighting continuity-wise. <laughs> and that, that's pretty much every project I do. You know, I've done commercials that I, we programmed the hell to this one song. And you play it on set. You're like, this is so cool. This goes perfectly to the music. And then what do they do in post? They change the song to something else. And you're like, None of this lighting makes any sense anymore, <laughs> but so be it. What can I do? As long as the paycheck clears, sure. If you guys are happy with that, then awesome. Yeah. I mean, you just always realize that there's tons of considerations. I'm sure in cases mm -hmm. like that, they're like, well, the lighting goes perfectly to the music. What do you mean change a song? They're like, well, that song cost a million dollars and this other one costs $200,000 to put in the commercial. So sorry, we need to go with this $200,000 one, you know? Yep. Yep. Speaking of things that are completely over our uh, pay grade, I know that there were a lot of people who didn't, uh, didn't care for some of the, the choices that Sia made. I think chiefly being the fact that uh, Maddie is not actually autistic. She's actually an able-bodied dancer who's exceptional. Mm -hmm. I, I, I know that a lot of people and this is totally out of our lighting realm, but uh, I would imagine that you've gotten some responses like, Hey, that's uh yeah. I think that just a little bit. I think there's two things going on with that situation. One is no matter how you portray autism, it's some people are going to say that's not how I've seen autism. And other people are going to say that's exactly how my child or is, because as we know, autism's a huge spectrum from right. highly functioning to you were like, well, this, that person, you know, they act a little socially awkward and you might not know that they have diagnosed autism to the far other end of the spectrum, which is what Maddie is in this is that Maddie basically can't live without the assistance of others. So I, I, I might have the word wrong here, but I, I know high functioning is one end. I'm not sure if the other end they're called low functioning or. Okay. What. Um, yeah, and my I wife's a teacher. She, either. yeah, she deals with students on both ends in her school. Um, so you're always going to have people that are going to say that this is, this is not my experience of autism. Therefore, this is incorrect. Um, and I think there are a lot of those people in the comments, but then I had a couple high school friends that have autistic children. They saw the movie, they reached out to me. They're like, Oh my God, Maddie is my son. That's exactly how he acts. Mm -hmm. Um, and I know there's one particular scene in the movie where, and it's in the trailer. So I'm not giving out anything if you haven't seen the movie, um, where Maddie is getting restraint on the ground because she's having a seizure. And I think that's a big problem a lot of the autistic community had with this was that that restraint um, isn't approved anymore uh, in, in treatment of, um, of seizures for people with autism. Okay. And Sia, I think on her social media came out and said, you know, I apologize for that. I'm going to see if there's a way I can re-edit the movie to take out that. Um, but in the current edit of the movie, it's, I believe it's still in there. But also she had uh, autism consultants from Autism Speaks. 
mm-hmm. that read the script. I'm not sure if they were on set, but then gave her ideas on how to do certain scenes. So she did reach out to support to make sure that she was treating the autism community correctly. Uh, unfortunately, she picked Autism Speaks, which is a organization that is uh, people are very divided about. Uh, there's a lot of the autistic community that does not like that organization and thinks that they don't do autistic people well. Huh. So, I mean, what can you say when you, you reach out to autistic organization and the one that you pick is actually a very cron- controversial orga- uh, organization. So I feel bad for her there that she's getting all this, um, this recourse, but they, they did try to do their research to treat the community well. And as far as casting Maddie, I think this has always happened. Um, I did a movie called Ghost in the Shell um, where they cast Scarlett Johansson to, in a role that was typically, I believe, Japanese. And mm-hmm. I did a music video for Arcade Fire where an actor played transgender when he wasn't transgender. And this is a matter of opinion, but actors act, that's their job. And yes, we do need to be more inclusive and in, in picking minority roles for minorities and all these other subgroups, they should be able to represent themselves in a lot of situations. And I think that's a very difficult thing that producers and directors are trying to figure out nowadays with casting is if you're representing a, a, a certain group, you know, using that, trying to find an actor or actress that represents that group correctly. But it's, it's very difficult. And I think it's only in the last five years that people started taking this seriously. Um, but also Maddie had a lot of choreography and she's, she's playing a very low functioning autistic person. I think that would be very difficult to find uh, an autistic person that has her characteristics that are in the movie. Uh, they can actually do this choreography and stuff. I'm not saying they don't exist and I'm, mm-hmm. I'm not condoning or saying that they did the correct thing in casting Maddie, but just, sort of playing devil's advocate that I think that would be a very difficult uh, act actress to find for that role. Yeah, it comes, it's a, it's a fine line. Nothing anybody does is going to please everybody, of course. Mm. But I mean, I think the heart of the matter is, is those music videos for me. I mean, I, nobody, she's irreplaceable in, in those scenes. Mm -hmm. I mean, I not, because nobody else can dance, but because the way she dances and the, what she does is so unique and her, just the way she's able to blink her eyes and open her eyes and the, the way her emotions come through her face and her. Oh, I think so when interesting. chandelier music video came out. Everyone was blown back by that music video. I, I had nothing to do with the part of that music video, mm-hmm. uh, but that was the first one where Maddie was dancing Messia and it was actually the same Steadicam operator, and I think that mu- that that I was after that mu- music video came out, I was so bummed out. I'm like, oh man, I really wish I was part of this. This is like one of the favorite music videos I've ever seen, and it's because of Maddie's looks that she's not just doing choreography, but she, her facial expressions the whole time while doing this insane choreography is the magic of her and and Sia and the choreographer Ryan Heffington, how they all work together to to get those moments. I have to give it to Sia and her design team. I, I don't know if it's all her, if she has a collaboration, but they are really, really good at making very simple things. Very interesting. Mm-hmm. It's not easy, especially in this world of overindulgence and extravagance. A lot of people will say, well, what do you mean? We're going to just have a, one girl in, in two rooms. That's not yeah. interesting. But if you can find the interesting features of one girl dancing in a room, you've got something. Yeah. And we, uh, back in November, Sia had to do uh, four award show performances. And so um, her team called me to come. We're going to film all four award show performances. And one day we're going to pre-tape it on the stage. And all of them were one-shot one shot dolly shot of Sia Jitschek. Her leg was actually broken when we filmed. <laughs> so it's her just sitting on a stool uh, singing the song and herself and the lighting and the camera movement just trying to carry the whole performance. Uh, but it, it works. 
if this wow. was this was Sia in this case, not Maddie, but still she she understands how to take in something and just make it theatrical and the notes that she gave for lighting and what she wanted for each song, it it worked and it's powerful. And I think some of the award shows, it was some of the that the, it aired on, it was some of the best performances in the award shows. That goes to one of the things I've been toying with recently is where no matter how well branded something is or no matter how much hype or how much extravagance or production you put into something if the content doesn't make sense or if it's not meaningful it's nothing but if if you have meaningful content and you have something interesting that that keeps people engaged you can you can cut out a lot of that other stuff a lot of i I hate to call it fluff because i mean that's where we all make our money but it is it's fluff after if the if the content isn't there and in the end as lighting people our purpose is to serve the content you know that's why we're third down the totem pole when yeah you know when it comes to how important it is for it because if the content's not working who really cares how well it's lit (laughs) no one wants to watch it (laughs) except for maybe us we've all seen stuff where like whoa that lighting's so cool but wow, that was really crappy music video or really crappy movie. But the lighting was cool and all it cares are us. No one else cares. No one wants to watch that. <laughs> if, you're, uh, if, you're, if your target audience is the 10,000 lighting designers in the world, then, yeah. then go for it. But if you're, you're ta- not going to make too much money, but <laughs> <laughs> we don't like to pay. We, we're going to ask for it for free anyway. So yeah. <laughs> right on. So it sounds like you've had quite a while to cultivate your your style and and it sounds like you're very well versed in this one. How did you what brought you into lighting? Did you did you come from an artist background or did you just fall into this? Um I think I'm a little I've listened to a lot of your podcasts and my origin story is like no one else's. I think most of the people you talk with they come from like a, a theater background. Yeah. Me, I definitely come from a filmmaking background which started from uh skating rollerblading like in skate parks growing up and making videos of skating videos and then a high school teacher being like wow you're really good at that you should go to film school for cinematography i'm like all right i'll go to film school for cinematography if that's what you say so i went to emerson (laughs) college and went to film school and basically focused on camera and lighting Um, and if anyone knows emerson they also have an amazing a theater design program too that have great teachers and great facilities. And a lot of my lighting classes for film actually were horrible. So I, I took all the theater lighting classes too. And I learned way more about lighting in the theater classes, but then realized it wasn't really a career I wanted to go down. I was just sort of using that department for their great teachers and, <laughs> and, and better, better teaching of, of actual lighting uh, concepts. Um, and the whole time working on films, I actually joined IATSE when I was in college. And if like um, The Departed, Martin Scorsese's Departed was there, I was working on that movie as an electrician. And then moved to Los Angeles in 2005, where I started working as an electrician at the same time working as a gaffer on um, music videos, uh, feature films, TV, whatever I could. And then I think it was, it was the, it was mainly focusing on music videos and feature films as a gaffer. And then the Beijing Olympics came out and I watched the opening ceremony and I was like, holy shit, this is where technology has got us. This is amazing what we can now do with lighting. Like the the Beijing Olympic opening ceremony just blew me away. I was like, okay, now I know what I want to do with lighting. I want to use all this latest technology to be able to create these amazing looks and be more efficient in it. So trying to learn as much as I can, I actually picked up uh, programming Grandam A1 then because it was like, well, even though I'm a gaffer and gaffers don't typically program, I can't afford a good programmer. So I guess I have to teach myself Grandam A. So I taught myself Grandam A1, just doing YouTube videos and then started um, bringing moving lights and consoles onto uh, music videos. And music videos are an amazing place to try stuff out. Yeah. Because if you screw stuff up, who cares? You'll just find some other way to do it. 
commercials and movies like you need to do it and you need to do it right or else like that was your job to do it correctly music videos you have so much leeway so like oh i found this free media server i'm gonna go buy a projector and for this one music video i'm just gonna project onto them and program it all from my grand domain using this free media server program that i found and through experimentation of course is also learning so that was just a huge learning ground for me and doing these music videos and be able to experiment with everyone. And luckily I found a couple DPs cinematographers that were going down the same road as me, Larkin Seipel, who I still work with now. And he was willing to do these, do these experimentations. And then once I sort of had the technology and the process down of doing full moving light rigs with consoles and stuff, that's when I started moving into like the live broadcast world. Um, Cause I think some people at iHeartRadio, I think they like the music video stuff I was doing like, Oh, this music video guy, he can do live concerts. So then iHeartRadio brought me on as one of their uh, in-house lighting designers at the Burbank theater to start doing their concerts. And then from there, I started doing more live broadcast type stuff and, and musicals. Right on such humble beginnings as like a, a skate rat video producer. Yeah. And honestly, I, before my teacher said, oh, you should do cinematography. I'm like, no, I just want to make skate videos for the rest of my life. She's like, that does not sound like a good idea. Why don't you focus on cinematography? <laughs> I'm like, that is a That's great cool. beginning. That's a great, great <laughs> beginning. Yeah. So I bought two books on lighting and was like, oh, lights are actually pretty cool. Maybe I'll make a living of this. So the Beijing Olympics was 2008. So yeah. you're... In the grand scheme of things, you're fairly new to the industry. I mean, that's a meteoric rise to Hollywood. Yeah, I mean, I I had done a ton of movies before that point, but it was really Olympics. I was like, all right, I just don't want to like turn on a 10K and put it through diffusion. Like that's not really what I enjoy, which is like what movies were back then. Mm -hmm. Okay, I want to learn this technology because I know that there's so much potential once you learn this new technology. And so since then, it's just been reading PLSN and, you know, <laughs> going on all the manufacturers' websites and LDI and trying to keep up with technology and use it in weird ways. You know, most of the stuff is meant for concert touring that, we're, that we use and trying to take that equipment and put it into film, filmmaking and film style shoots, you know, can sometimes be difficult. And I feel like the past 10 years, it's me seeing this amazing product that's meant for a concert and bringing it into a film shoot and, and creating some really cool looks with it. That sort of experimentation is what's going to get your name out there too. There's going to be people like, Hey, I saw Matt the other day and he was doing something I have never seen before. We got to bring him over here. And next thing you know, it's, you're just falling uphill. You're like, wow, everybody seems to like what I'm doing. Yeah. And luckily there's, there's just been so much change in technology, even since 2008 Mm -hmm. that you can never keep up with it. So a lot of people like to think like, oh no, you shouldn't let technology drive your creative ideas. But looking at new products does give me I creative ideas that I write down a notebook and then maybe someday, someday apply to a broadcast concert or to a movie or to a commercial or a music video or something. Yeah, I've talked to designers who say that they're waiting for the technology to catch up to their creativity. It's not the other way around. It's not like I saw this light and now I'm going to put it up put 500 of them it's i've been waiting for that light to put mm-hmm. 500 on this product on this production yeah there's two different ways of looking at it it's not that you're letting technology drive your design it's it's the design is finally caught up to your creativity mm-hmm. and so many times there's products that you're like oh my god i never even thought we needed that and now it's out and you're like wow i know how to put this to use <laughs> like to me the the roby robo spot the past two years has completely changed you know like how i key light stuff yeah who knew that i mean, that was a solution to a problem we didn't even know was ever solvable yeah because i i guess i just always feel bad i'm like i do not want that guy to be in a follow spot basket for 12 hours all right no follow spots it is and now i can make any light in the rig a follow spot yeah yeah that's awesome. Those are the the ground control. All of those things are just so impressive to me in the fact that 
we never would have thought that there's any way to move a, a moving light without having a person up there that, mm -hmm. you know, uh, it would be far too easy for most of us. Like, yeah. There is no solution. That's just the way it is. And that's how you get stuck in a rut by and that's how it's always been. That's how it'll always be. Yeah. And then working with cinematographers that have no idea about programming or, you know, even moving lights. A lot of times they're like, well, from the lighting console, can't you just follow the actor around with the moving light? I'm like, I mean, we can give it a shot, but that's like 10 takes of me screwing up, trying to follow them <laughs> with, with two encoders. Like that's not going to work. And now I'm like, no, yeah, totally. We'll do that. Yeah. Yep. We can do it. That's cool. Yeah. I remember those questions. We used to get that all the time, especially at award shows, people just popping up from the chair in there out in the audience, then just walking up to the stage. Like these are moving lights. You can just pick them up when they stand up. Right. Like, no, no, I can't do that. Uh, can I get somebody else in here to do that? No, no, you can't now. Yes. Yes, we can <laughs> yeah. bring some like video game kid in. Maybe they can get it. <laughs> so you said that you joined the union fairly young then. Yeah, in uh, I think I was 20 years old when I joined IATC Local 481, which is the, uh, it's in Boston. It's the uh, film, lighting, and other crafts union there. And then in 2006 or 2007, I joined IATC Local uh, 728, which is in Hollywood, which is just devoted to lighting. It's the only, um, the only IATC Local in the world that just covers lighting. Cool. And uh, I've been an instructor for them the past 10 years. I'm a ETCP certified instructor and I teach classes for 728 in um, lighting control networks. Me and uh, Dave Kane, we, we teach them together. And that's been awesome to do. I've met so many people by teaching classes and it's, it's sort of self-fulfilling. I, I learned so much myself because I'm like, oh man, I got to keep up on this. You know, what is IGMP snooping? I see that. Oh, I got to do a whole section on this now. I got to teach myself that. So <laughs> every time you get asked a new question, it opens up a whole new rabbit hole for you. Yeah. Especially when you're an instructor, you're like, Oh, I don't want to be stumped and I don't want to give them wrong information. I really got to study this. <laughs> That's cool. How has the, uh, how's the union been during the isolation period? Are you still getting supported and taken care of? Yeah, we have um, our president is Alan Rowe, who is also our safety and training director. And like the first week that TV and film and commercials started in and canceled, he seemed to already have a game plan. Working with the previous uh, business rep we had, the business rep was helping people deal with keeping their uh, hours for health and helping them through uh, setting up unemployment. And then our president, Alan Rowe, automatically called me. and was like, all right, let's start doing online classes. We need to keep people busy and keep their mind in like the work mentality uh, and give them something to do during the day. Cause we all know like the end of March, April, May, those all sucked. We're all stuck at home with nothing to do. So Alan scheduled a ton of classes. So seven to eight members, five days a week, if they wanted to, they could take online classes, which I really think helped a lot of people's sanity, not only learning new information, but giving them something to do in the middle of the day. Once we, once, things sort of settled down and we were still in the pandemic, he would do a weekly wrap-up meeting where he'd say, all right, this is how many cases are in the U.S. This is how many in L.A. This is what the politicians are talking about. And we've been working with unemployment to try to speed up this process for you guys. So they've been extremely helpful to all the members of uh, 728 and, and not only giving us stuff to do, but making sure that financially and mentally we are healthy. They even now they started this thing every Sunday night there's an hour of meditation led by one of our members that um, studied in Tibet and he leads meditation every Sunday night uh, just to give people some, some mental health. And uh, I think it's attended usually by 30 people every Sunday night with 728 members. Oh my God. That is what a fully functioning union sounds like to me. That yeah. is, a, that sounds hugely wildly successful. I think most 728 members are very proud to be 728 members because we have people that lead us uh, in, in developing these great programs that look out for us on all ends of 
financially, politically, and, um, and mentally to, to get these things done. Those are the sort of things that we really need to focus and prioritize, especially right now. There's so many people at home with nothing to do and, and no idea of when they're going to get back to it to just be able to sit down for an hour and meditate with 30 people, like-minded people, even if it's through a screen to just listen to and know that there's 30 other people meditating with you. That's, that's huge. It's kind of unfortunate. It has to happen in front of a screen, but that's where we're at these days. So be it, you know, I, I think all of this online stuff, even the manufacturers that have done all these online webinars, yeah, you know, they've been super helpful for me. I, I can't, I, I maybe have attended like a hundred of these. I always love learning. And after it's over, you always, you're talking with people, you're asking questions, you're meeting people. As much as it sucks, there's no way I could attend a hundred, not on zoom. You know, I go to LDI, maybe I can get 15 in over the weekend, Yeah. you know, and then I get a couple more throughout the year. So the upside of this pandemic is it has brought together the lighting community in all these zoom meetings that we would otherwise never be able to attend. Yeah. I'm with you on that one. I, I, I like to think that 15 in-person meetings are better than a hundred over the internet, but at the same time, a hundred connections is a hundred connections. That's nothing to scoff about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So how are you enjoying your time at home? I would imagine you're getting a little bit more time at home than normal, but it sounds like you're still keeping relatively busy. Yeah. I've been very fortunate that since last July, I've been pretty busy and I'm, I'm almost booked till August this year. Um, and I think that's because the public was just like, these commercials suck. We don't want to see the same commercials over and over. So commercials, <laughs> commercials picked up pretty quickly. You know, I think brands were like, well, we're going to COVID test the hell out of them. I'm like three COVID tests a week uh, to, to try to get these commercials done. So I have been extremely fortunate with that, but mid uh end of march april may june i honestly i was enjoying the time off uh i think we all try to book shows back to back to back we don't give ourselves any time in between and if Mm -hmm. we do have time in between it's like all right laundry car send you know play with kids and it's like this checklist that you need to get done before the next gig starts Yep. And this was nice. It was like, all right, well, I have no idea how long this is going on. The checklist was done the first week. And then it was just a matter of like, all right, what are we going to do today? All right. Well, at four o'clock, we're all going to play tag outside, you know, and like, that's the thing. And it was frustrating, but at the same time, I really enjoyed just not worrying about the next job and just being able to hang out with the family you have three kids at home? Yeah, three kids. I have a, a seven-year-old, a 14-year-old, and a 16-year-old. The two older ones are actually my stepkids that I've been with for 10, 11 years now. That's a lot of loving at home. That's a lot for daddy to do when uh, when dad gets home. Yeah, uh, the two older ones are pretty self-sufficient. The seven-year-old, you know, they've, everyone's changed a little bit during the pandemic and you try to, see, I know my personality has probably changed. It's hard for me to see it myself, but you see how much the kids have changed because of the pandemic. And like the boys do not want to leave the house. Like they, they just want to stay in and play video games all day. They don't want to go to the playground and they don't want to hang out with friends. So that's been sort of tough to try to figure like, oh, is it safe to go to the playground today? And, but they don't want to go out, you know? Right. Oh, my wife and I are having a tough time with that one too. Cause we want the kids to be outside as much as possible, but also don't go to the park where there's too many kids. Let's yeah. go to the park when there's not, a, not that many kids, even though they are going to school again. Uh, I'm in Canada. My kids are going back to school now and they've got masks on all the time. It's, it's a, such a tough bouncing rope to walk. It's what do you do with them? Yeah. Right now in LA, um, no schools are back yet. Not even private. I think that's going to be changing soon because uh, LA had a, every county in California, from what I understand, as soon as they hit a percentage of uh, below a certain number of new cases, then that county could start thinking about opening up schools. 
LA is now below that threshold, which is great. And I think they're starting to mobilize now to figure out how to open up schools. My wife is actually a public school teacher. So that's going to be a big change for us when school gets back in. But right now I think there's, I'm zooming with you and there's four other zooms going on in my house right now too. So, Oh my God. So you, yeah. you're here. Your wife is upload zooming to yeah. her students all the while all three kids are on everybody's sitting in front of a screen right now. Yeah. It's around one o'clock here. So I think a lot of them are going to get off and the two older ones will switch the classes. I had to upgrade my internet. And then good thing I knew I learned about ethernet for lighting because I had to put in switches and hardline ethernet cable throughout my house just to decrease everyone's pings so that they could, uh, well, play Fortnite, but also have better Zoom connections. So I ran Ethernet hardline to several rooms in the house and put switches in. And now we have a much better internet connection and bumped it up to over 100 megabits per second. <laughs> it's a good thing I had that knowledge from doing Ethernet rigs. <laughs> wow. Hey, I guess that's one of the things you learn when you when you have to train other people about networking. It's not just DMX anymore. We, we're using Ethernet a lot more than we ever did before. Yeah. Yeah, that's a big part of the classes. I'm gonna, I'll am i share my story with you too. I live in a very small uh, suburb of Windsor, Ontario, a little town called Stony Point, Ontario. I'm very lucky to get 20 megs of internet. And oh my so, God. Yeah, and we, we also did the, had the same thing. I'm doing these in here. My wife was doing hers, both kids downstairs. We had to get a second internet service. So I've got one that comes through my phone line, which is gives me 10. And then we had to get another one that is a, a satellite internet. Mm. So we have two different internet providers just to get. And so I'll put two kids on one service and me and my wife on the other service. Wow. Good. Yeah, you're, like a, you're, a, you're like an unpaid IT tech in your house. <laughs> 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 you know, you know, um, SpaceX is now doing Starlink in the US. And they're saying they're going to be able to get 100 megabits per second starting out and they're going to go up from there. I wonder if that's a solution for you. We were this close. We weren't quite at the right latitude, but I have a friend who works at Starlink and I almost got to be a part of the beta testing. Oh, wow. It didn't quite didn't quite happen. I really want to do it cuz I hate my service, but I'm getting 100 megabits per second and Starlink was more expensive for 100 megabits per second of what I'm already paying, so yeah, but I, think, I think they're they're only going up from there. I think they're starting and they're going to they're hopefully I think they're trying to get a gigabit or something in the end. All right on. So I think this is the hardest part for me is my son, he has ADHD, so he needs to just move and dance and mm -hmm. spin and jump and he's he's super wiggly. So in the morning we have breakfast, then he goes to uh up until recently they were doing online learning. He would, we would finish breakfast. He would go downstairs and do his school, which is, you know, six hours on zoom. Then he would finish and he would come up and uh, we'd have a snack. Then he would go back downstairs to his dance class, which was on another zoom. Then he would come upstairs. We'd have dinner. And now finally he's like, Oh, now I want to play my video games. And which he just goes back downstairs on sits in front of a screen again. That was, it was tough. It, it was the only thing he has. He, all of his interactions with his friends was through Zoom. Everything that he could access was all through a screen. Yeah. Even like my boy's social interaction right now is talking with their friends playing Fortnite. That's pretty much all they have for social interaction. I think maybe my older son, he's, does, um, he's on TikTok probably with them and stuff. But the, all they're talking they're doing is playing video games on headset, talking with each other. <laughs> um, stuff is opening up more in LA. Um, so I think in-person meetups should be fine. And honestly, yeah. they have been doing it a little bit here and there outside wearing masks and whatnot, but now they've, they've grown so accustomed to that. It's hard to convince them otherwise, you know, why go over your friend's house when you can hang out with a friend, them at their house, your, your house playing Fortnite together. You're just going to go over there and play Fortnite on their television anyway. Yeah. And then only one person can play at a time. It's not like, <laughs> you know, it's not like our games when we used to play split screen and that was fine. Like you can't really play split, split screen with these modern games. Yeah. I remember when, uh, I think it was Nintendo that had you the four, four controllers and then you could at least yeah. have four people. I think it was a golden eye 007. You could have four mm -hmm. people. Oh, 
There were lots that of birthday something. parties that were just playing GoldenEye, <laughs> you know, <laughs> GoldenEye tournaments. But yeah, what's the point? Why would you want to go over your friend's house if you can play with each other at your own house, get full screen and still be talking with each other? And you can have 20 of your friends. In fact, I'll take it one step further. That's how we had to do my kid's birthday this year. We were going to go out, laser tag, mm-hmm. and then the the second wave hit. So we had to cancel that. And we just moved the, there was the, kept the invitation list and we just moved it to a game of among us. And yeah. my kids sat in the living room in front of their phones and had their birthday party with mm-hmm. 10 of their friends and they loved it. It was crazy. Yeah. The, the, unfortunately what I am starting to see though, is sometimes they're playing with random people and of course it's so easy to be an asshole on the internet as we all know. Oh Yeah. And you're seeing this, like the, these kids that used to be so compassionate for each other, when you're not face to face, it's a lot easier to say stuff that's mean. Yeah. And so I'm actually hearing that coming out of some of my boys and you're trying to explain to them like, all right, before you say anything online, if you were looking that person in the face, would you say that same thing? You need to think about that before you're, you're saying, oh, you're the worst Fortnite player in the world. You suck. You know, and even though we've been teaching compassion for many years to our kids, this new uh, this new way of them socially interacting is sort of put it made it way easier to be not compassionate. And so uh, I'm starting to see with that and a few other things like, all right, the values we're trying to teach our kids, the the method that we are teaching these values isn't quite working in this new situation, and we have to figure out some other way to get these values across to them with them just interacting on the internet and not interacting in person. Yeah. That's a whole new parenting skill that we have to develop even further because we can't monitor every single interaction. Oh, it's impossible. I think like what, like my oldest daughter, 16, we tried. And I think back then the outlets that they could go to were less in quantity. So we actually could somewhat manage her online presence but now that they're on like 10 different apps on phone ipad and computer it's it's impossible so all you can really do is try to teach them what they're supposed to do and hope that they do it because monitoring children online is not possible right nope. now with the, the nope. so many outlets that they go to yeah my, I don't know how to do it. I'm trying, I'm not I monitor, but I, I, we're trying to figure out how to instill these values. And I, as you can see, we, it's not going so well in some aspects because I do hear them saying stuff in the mic that they would not otherwise say. I uh, I was trying to find my son's homework the other day, and I didn't know if it was on Edsby or OneNote oh, or OneCloud or Brilliant. I didn't know. You know, where is your homework? I, I don't know. It's on one of these websites somewhere and the login is something that I don't know. And I I have no clue if he's done his homework or not without reaching out to his teacher. And I'm sure she's getting bombarded with hundreds of questions. Like why isn't my son getting this? Why isn't my daughter? And we'll see what this turns into when these pandemic kids grow up when, I mean, when there's parents like you and I that are seeing this and trying to fix it before it starts, but some parents either don't really want to put that effort in or, they're way too busy to be able to have that much interaction that we have, you know, as these kids grow up being adults and we see them in the workforce, you know, what's that, what's that mean for us that they're on our crews and they're a little bit socially awkward because two, three years of their life were socially distance wearing masks. And I'm, I'm, I mean, I think all the precautions that we're taking are hundred percent correct what we need to do, but we definitely do have to realize that these unwanted side effects are, that these pandemic kids are having and to grow up and be adults and they are going to be a little bit socially awkward. They, they might all end up being roadies. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) We're breeding an entire generation of roadies designed to stare at screens and talk to people through headsets. Yeah. Uh, We've definitely, uh, we've definitely set them up for that. So we are almost out of time. Thank you so much. This has been a great conversation. We did not get to like three quarters of the questions that I had. <laughs> but I do want to end with one question that I've been noticing on your your Facebook is you seem to be really good at having outside hobbies. 
is that a conscious decision that you made or is that just because did you just fall into doing things outside of the lighting industry? Um, I think I mentioned rollerblading earlier, skating, like skating at skate parks is what got me into filmmaking, which got me into lighting. So that's always been a thing for me. And then like 10 years ago, I got into running in the mountains. And for me, like, I love what I do. I love my work. Um, but I also love just as much my hobbies and spending time with my family. So I make very conscious decisions as to the jobs that I take. I don't take anything that's over two weeks long if I'm traveling. I used to, I used to take movies all the time where I'd be in Louisiana for six months um, before I met my wife mm -hmm. and, and stepkids. And then like a few years after I met them, I took a three-week job in Korea doing um, the uh, League of Legends World Championships and I was like, this is miserable. The job wasn't miserable. I actually really enjoyed the job and the crew, but being away from my family, this song's miserable. And since then, it's been a conscious decision. And like week-long travel, that's what I do. If it's a job I really want to do, I'll do two weeks, but I won't travel for more than that. And then even if I'm in LA working, I try not to take movies or episodic TV because that's gone for 14 hours a day. You know, what's the point of being in town if I'm waking up before they wake up and I'm going to sleep after they're already asleep, may as well be out of town. So I've sort of been trying to pick jobs that are shorter term commercials, broadcast concerts. Um, I will do maybe one movie a year or something. And that's just me personally, because I, I do want my free time to do stuff. Uh, but I know some people, they actually enjoy working every day because they love their job so much. And I do love my job. Just somehow it's, it's come out to me that I don't feel complete and happy if I, in a week, did not run, did not skate, and did not get to go do fun things with my family because I do have those hobbies and I enjoy being a dad and being a part of that. And it's difficult because I have these colleagues that do these amazing movies and I see these lighting rigs and the movie's so good. I'm like, wow, it would be so cool to do that. That would mean I'd be in Atlanta for nine months. And, you know, you just got to weigh the options. Like, and it's difficult. I, I'm still trying to figure it out. Yeah. I'm, I'm still, still trying to figure out the same thing. It's, it's tough. You know, we, we used to, especially when we were single, we could devote 14 hours a day to anything and then go home and sleep for three hours and come back and not miss a step. Mm -hmm but it's just not the same when you, when your priorities start to switch, right. And without you even realizing it, that it comes up on you quick. Yeah. And I, for me, that's meant picking more commercials. That's and cool. Yeah. What sort of sucks is like commercials are sort of like soul draining, you know, you're just <laughs> trying to hawk this product. I'm sure, you know, like a lot of people do corporate theater. I'm sure it's like, this corporate theater is sort of like the commercials of the film, you know, filmmaking world to have commercials in corporate theater is what's, you know, part of the theater world. And it sucks to be just working, trying to hawk this one product as opposed to like making a movie that's artistic. Uh, but they allow me the lifestyle that I, that I, I like. So it, it goes back and forth. And that's why every once in a while I'm like, you know what, this script is cool. I'm going to do this movie because that's just what I'm feeling right now. And yes, I will be away from my family for a bit. Not going to have time to run or skate, but uh, you know, I am a filmmaker and I want to do stuff that is fun and not just have a purpose of trying to sell a product. Cool. Congratulations. It sounds like you found uh, the best balance that you can find. Then it sounds like you're at least uh, you're, you're actively seeking that perfect balance. Actively seeking. Yes. I have not found it actively seeking, <laughs> but you know, my wife and actually my mother-in-law helped me a lot with it. They're like, I tell them a job, I get called for this job. They both are like, well, is it something you really want to do? Go ahead and do it. Or a lot of times they're like, you picked a job that you didn't want to do. So that was your own fault. Don't do that again. <laughs> you know, they're they're going to keep me in check with not taking back to back to back jobs. If, if, uh, if I don't need to. Wow. That's a, that's some impressive accountability there. <laughs> yeah. Mother-in-law. Cause she, but before a pandemic, she would watch the kids on days I was working, you know, and bring okay. them to school. So 
she has she she has a lot of opinion in that <laughs> right on matt thank you so much for your time i really appreciate it it's really good to catch up and see how you do it man i really appreciate your time it was really fun thank you so much talk to you soon all right bye